Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It is a fact of life that there are periods where everything old is new again. If you look at Broadway, for example, old productions are always being brought back. Take West Side Story. It first premiered in 1957 and was brought back in 1960, 1964, 1980, 2009, and 2020. So that's five revivals. The Gershwin musical Porgy and Bess has been brought back seven times. Movies are always being rebooted. Ghostbusters, Planet of the Apes, King Kong, Robocop, Willy Wonka, Halloween, Spider-Man. A Star is Born first appeared in 1937 and was remade in 1954, 1976, and 2018. Then there are all the TV remakes. You know, MacGyver, 90210, Dynasty, Lost in Space, Roseanne, Twin Peaks, Star Trek, of course. And then there are the musical reboots, scenes and sounds that are brought back by people who are sometimes generations removed from when this music first appeared. Maybe it starts with people who stumble on some old records, or maybe they independently discovered sounds and styles that they thought were new. Whatever the case and whatever the source, music is constantly being recycled and renewed. And that's what we're looking at with this series of shows. This is Alt-Rock Revivals Part 5, and this time, the focus is New Wave. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. The Killers, released on March 15th, 2004. And when that song came out, Longtime alt-rock fans immediately felt that something much older was lurking within their sound. They had strands of DNA from New Order, Duran Duran, The Cure, The Talking Heads, The Smiths, all bands from the New Wave era of the late 1970s and early 1980s. And it turns out that the Killers weren't alone. They were part of a whole New Wave revival that took hold at the beginning of the 2000s. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the fifth and final chapter of a series that looks at revivals over the history of alt-rock. And before we can dive into the New Wave revival, we kind of have to figure out what New Wave was in the first place. And that's kind of a tricky question, but we'll try to answer it this way. As the original punk rockers raged on in the middle and late 1970s, there were those musicians who loved this sort of free expression but weren't so crazy about the anger and aggression and violence and politics that came with it. This was music that wasn't punk, but could not have happened unless punk had gotten there first. You could tell by listening to this music that something like punk had happened, and recently. The two are definitely and inextricably related. We can break down things into two eras of new wave back in the day. The first era started to appear as punk was peaking. So let's call this 1977. That's when we saw the inklings of what might come after punk, ergo the name post-punk, which was an umbrella term for this music. Another term, and remember, you know, humans have a need to categorize things, was postmodern. but that was a little hard to explain. It sounded a bit too artsy. And finally, there was this term, new wave. Now, 
That first applied to the work of a new generation of French filmmakers who emerged in the late 1950s. Guys like Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut had a different way of looking at cinema, rejecting many of the traditional ways of making movies. Their movement was called Nouvelle Vague, which of course is French for New Wave. When it came to music, the term had been bandied about since the early 1970s, when some writers began referring to groups like the Velvet Underground and the New York Dolls as New Wave, or at least a new wave in rock. But they used it the same way as it was applied to film, artists who rejected the norms of regular blues-based rock and roll. And then Malcolm McLaren, a one-time manager of the New York Dolls, started throwing out the term when he was trying to describe cool new bands that weren't quite punk. And by the time we got to the end of 1977, some people were using the terms punk and new wave interchangeably. Now, here's an example of UK new wave from that first wave of new wave in and around 1977-78. Elvis Costello was not punk, but he wasn't straight rock either. And he certainly wasn't traditional pop. This, this was different. Elvis Costello from his second album, 1978's This Year's Model. And that's the kind of music I'm talking about when it came to the first wave of British New Wave. Spiky, angular, and somewhat agitated. One of the best descriptions I've ever read about this era of British music is that things went from being about F.U. to we're effed. But it wasn't all pessimism. Some British New Wave bands were actually quite happy, and they were a lot of fun. These were the groups with the sharp suits and skinny ties who played choppy, sharp-sounding pop, but with a fresh sort of power and featuring clever, sometimes artsy, and, uh, well, let's just say it, geeky lyrics. Want an example? XTC. We're only making plans for Nigel. As this future in a British deal. From Swindon, west of London, that's XTC with Making Plans for Nigel from a 1978 album entitled Drums and Wires. British New Wave, the stuff that we've been talking about so far, did not last that long. Maybe, well, two, three years before it morphed into something else, which is when the second era of New Wave began on that side of the Atlantic. But we'll get to that a little later, because now we have to go to America. Punk never really caught on in North America the same way that it did in the UK. It was considered to be too political, too class-oriented, too crass, too vulgar, and too violent. Radio stations wouldn't touch the Ramones. The Clash's record label was afraid to put out Clash records in America. And the print media wasn't exactly on board either. The October 20th, 1977 edition of Rolling Stone magazine had the Sex Pistols on the cover with the headline, Rock is Sick and Living in London. Other critics branded punk as a fad that would soon disappear forever. This was awfully short-sighted given the excitement of this music, and it was just too good to ignore. Which is where we meet Seymour Stein and his people at Sire Records. Seymour loved this new music. He signed the Ramones. He signed the Dead Boys. He signed the Talking Heads. And he was very, very into this new post-punk music coming out of the UK and Ireland. The Pretenders, the Undertones, Echo and the Bunnymen. But he also understood that punk 
was a problem for North Americans. It carried too much baggage. So, why not co-opt the term new wave? Hey, good idea. In fact, Sire launched a marketing campaign for these new signings under the banner, Don't Call It Punk. They actually spelled that out, Don't Call It Punk. This was New Wave, the American version. Talking Heads from 1979 and an example of American New Wave. By the end of the 70s, there were two slightly different versions of New Wave, one for America and one for the UK. But all that was about to merge. More in a second. This is Chapter 5 in our look at alt-rock revivals, and the subject this time is New Wave. Now, to recap, the New Wave sound began in the UK as followed from the original punk rock scene. American New Wave began to take hold when Sire Records borrowed the term to market signings like the Talking Heads and the Pretenders. This, if you like, was the first wave of New Wave, the energetic, guitar-based, slightly jittery brand of power pop featuring people in suit jackets and skinny ties. The second wave began in earnest in about 1980 with the widespread introduction of synthesizers. By this point, synth bands had been around for almost a decade, but it took until the beginning of the 80s for the gear to become cheap enough, portable enough, and powerful enough to be taken up by everyday musicians. And there was something kind of punk about the way the people used this new technology. They didn't necessarily know how to play a synthesizer. Many had zero musical training. They just found it fun to screw around with synths until they came up with cool sounds. In fact, they were finding sounds that had never been heard anywhere in the universe before. And because this seemed so high-tech and futuristic, it had to be part of this new wave of music, right? And so was born synth-pop, a form of new wave that eschewed guitars for synths, sequencers, and drum machines. Dreaming of Me, the debut single from Depeche Mode in early 1981. That did not sound anything like original New Wave, but was classified as such anyway. And then came the big defining media moment. The debut of MTV, 12.01 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, August 1st, 1981. Wait a second, a, a channel that showed nothing but music videos 24-7? <laughs> that's, that's crazy, who's going to watch that? And at first, the answer was no one. MTV couldn't get many big cable companies to pick them up. And frankly, back in the beginning, they didn't have that much to offer. When they first launched, their entire library consisted of 250 music videos, 30 of which were by Rod Stewart. But as the months passed, record labels realized that they saw sales spikes of MTV bands in cities that had MTV on their cable systems. And which bands started doing the best? Well, it was the second wave of new wave bands. Well, why? Because they were perfect for television. The makeup, the wild clothes, the crazy personas, their hot looks. Music morphed from an audio-only thing into a very, very visual one. And because Britain had a long, long history of creating promotional films for songs for use on TV, MTV started acquiring more and more of those clips for broadcast in America. 
These strange and wonderful artists started appearing on American TV screens by the dozens. It was literally a second British invasion. And we were all told that these acts were all part of the new wave. MTV and other video outlets established what New Wave was in the early 1980s. And it was a lot of things, to be honest. It was Duran Duran. It was Elvis Costello. It was Blondie and Depeche Mode. It was the Pretenders and the Smiths. It was the Talking Heads and the Cure. Basically, anything that had a progressive sound, anything that had more in common with punk than traditional blues-based rock and roll, was considered to be part of the New Wave universe. Now, that's a big scene. So, no wonder people began to section off bits into subgenres. Synth pop had its own section, and within that, there were the new romantics. Those who preferred dark guitars were siphoned off into another area with Public Image Limited, Joy Division, and The Cure. Dorky bands had their day too Devo, the B 52s, Oingo Boingo. There were post disco new wave bands New Order, Dead or Alive, Eurythmics, The Human League. Then there were the new wave acts that had all the punk DNA stripped away, resulting in bands like Culture Club and Wham!, both of which, by the way, were considered to be alternative bands in the very beginning. But eventually, the idea of new wave became too big, too unwieldy, and therefore meaningless. And by 1985, the genre differences were just too blurry, and all the commonalities had been wiped out. It was time to move on. For a little while. Anyway, now we can get into the new wave revivals. We'll do that after this. This is a look at alt-rock revivals through the decades, and this installment is all about new wave. The first revival of new wave was called, wait for it, the new wave of new wave, which emerged in the very early 1990s. You can blame British music journalists for coming up with that term, which they seem to have poached from an earlier movement called the New Wave of British Heavy Metal, which began around the turn of the 1980s. The New Wave of New Wave was a British thing that lumped together groups who unabashedly mined material from that 77 to 80 period for inspiration. They were wild about groups like Wire, XTC, The Clash, Bowie, Blondie, The Stranglers. The New Wave of New Wave did not last long because many of the bands tagged with that label were soon subsumed into something bigger that we called Britpop. Elastica from late 1993 with Stutter. Note the similarities between that song and some of the original 70s new wave that we heard earlier in the program. Elastica was such a fan of that music that they were sued twice once by Wire, a 70s post-punk band, and another time by The Stranglers for nicking bits of their old songs. Like I said, that first New Wave revival did not last long. In fact, you could say it was almost stillborn. It would be about another decade before we saw a full-on revival. At the beginning of the 2000s, we began to hear from a new generation of young bands who obviously spent a lot of time going through their parents' or older siblings' record collections. They found plenty to like. New Order, The Cure, Duran Duran, Bowie, Depeche Mode, and they started making music in the same manner. A new coat of paint, sort of. Now, we've already talked about The Killers. Their name, by the way, 
came from the name of a fictional band that we see in New Order's music video for the song Crystal. All the guys in The Killers are also big fans of The Smiths and Morrissey and The Cure and Blondie and Duran Duran. Then there's Franz Ferdinand. Everybody in the band had a fondness for that spiky, jittery, stop-start stuff from the 1970s. Joy Division, The Fall, Blondie, The Stranglers, Gang of Four. And they were just enough removed from that original sound to feel fresh and cool when this one was released in January 2004. Franz Ferdinand and the Killers were far from the only new wave revivalists of the early 2000s. From the UK, we had Block Party, the Kaiser Chiefs, Ladytron, the Ting Tings, and Foles. In fact, if you read any write-ups in the British music papers about bands like that, you'll have seen them referred to as New New Wave. On this side of the Atlantic, a lot of new wave revivalists seem to be headquartered in New York. The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, The Rapture and maybe the best of them all, or at least the most obvious of them all, the bravery. They took bits of Depeche Mode, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Cars, and Duran Duran to come up with something new yet very familiar. Was this released in 2005 or 1980? Could have been either. A point of interest about the bravery, singer Sam Endicott has gone on to write songs for Christina Aguilera and Shakira. Let's hear another example of, uh, well, we'll just call it the new, new, new wave from the early 2000s. Hot Hot Heat was formed in Victoria, B.C. in 1999. Their specialty was material inspired and informed by early new wave bands like Squeeze, Elvis Costello, and XDC. Now that we've gone through some of those bands and what they sounded like, you will hear it instantly. More sounds in the style of the original new wave from Hot Hot Heat. That's middle of nowhere from their 2005 album Elevator. New Wave's influences continue to be felt today. These ideas have fragmented into a long list of subgenres that you might want to explore further. There's electroclash, cold wave, dark wave, synth wave, and chill wave. You could also look up terms like post-disco, new pop, and new rave. And if I can offer some recommended reading, there's an excellent book on the whole concept of new wave and post-punk called Rip It Up and Start Again, Post-Punk 1978-1984 by Simon Frith. It goes deep into the topic and could provide additional inspiration for you. And that's our look at alt-rock revivals through the decades. For now, anyway. Who knows what sounds might come around again in the future to dominate our attention again. For a little while, anyway. Could it be, what, industrial, goth, shoegaze, Britpop? None of these scenes have ever really gone away, of course. But maybe they'll once again be adopted en masse, by a new generation that will take them to new places, just like we've seen with punk and ska and emo and garage rock and new wave. Remember what I said at the very beginning of this series, to everything there is a season and turn, turn, turn. More information like this can be found at my website, which is a journal of musical I update it every day. There's a free newsletter to go along with it. 
Hundreds of ongoing history shows are available as podcasts. Go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Any rating and recommending is always welcome. If you want to connect, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and I am very, very good at answering email. Seriously good. Try me through Alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.